Well, please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, as we uh, come to now the preaching of God's Word. Have you ever been out in the woods or maybe in the middle of the desert or somewhere where you're out of the light of the city? I know we live in Medford, so there's decent darkness at night, but I'm talking about when it's just black and you can't see the hand in front of your face and it's a nice clear night and you just look at the what seemingly infinite number of stars over your head. Um, you can see even sometimes the with the naked eye the Milky Way sort of band the band going through the sky. It seems just an infinite reach of space out there. The, the glory of the things that God has made or Maybe it's standing on the shore of the ocean and just hearing and sensing and feeling the awesome power of the waves as they crash over and over uh, on the shore. Or maybe it's just a beautiful meadow covered with the, the rainbow of spring flowers God, as God paints the landscape. We look at these things and we are and we should be awestruck by the beauty of it all. By the, by, the, by the creator that's painted this picture for us. And as you stare off into that vast landscape, or maybe as you just get up in the morning to tackle again the duties of the day, at some point, we all wrestle with the question of why. Why is all of this stuff here? Why are things as they are? Why is there beauty in this world? Why do I exist? Why am I even here? Now, now, we know in our modern, intellectual, enlightened day that there are many answers that are given to that question of why, right? The question really of origin. And there are many that would have us believe that we're really just random sort of happy accidents. We have no purpose of being here. Stardust was colliding with stardust and life was formed in some primordial ooze. And out of that grew some form of a fish and at some, form, at some point, that fish decided to get out of the water and walk, eventually becoming a primate. And now here we are today, the ancestors of fish and apes. And you can see in that sort of mindset and worldview why it is though very people that are championing a world with no purpose and no meaning are the same ones that champion abortion on demand and the the fulfillment of all sexual perversion. Because if life has no purpose or meaning, then what does it matter? Right? Drink and be merry and move on when you die. Um, but the Bible has a much more satisfying answer to the question of why. And I want to consider today the question, is there some guiding principle or purpose to this whole thing? Does, did God have intentionality? when he created the cosmos in six days. Now, I'm a bit hesitant to say there's one reason why God did everything he did, but I do believe it's fair to say that there is an overarching guiding principle, sort of the, the main goal of all of this that God explains to us in his word. And so my proposition today, my argument is this, the creation exists from, through, and to God, that it might be a theater to display His divine glory. Again, the creation exists from, through, and to God, 
that it might be a theater to display His divine glory. Let's read now from uh, our passage today. It's Romans 11 in verse 36, the last verse of the chapter. This is God's word today for His church. Take heed how you hear it. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray, church. Our Father, we come now to the preaching of Your Word, and um, Lord, our minds are, 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 are weak and feeble, our bodies are, are frail and maybe tired, maybe getting hungry, maybe hot, maybe cold. Um, we're troubled by the things that happened this past week, we're troubled by the things that come in the coming week, and as, as the Lord Jesus says, uh, the troubles will be there tomorrow. And so we pray that for this hour, for this time, you would still all the anxieties of the world, that we might by faith put all that stuff aside and sit and hear and receive from your holy word. Um, Lord, I pray for myself that you might give me a great measure of your spirit here, that, that Christ might speak now to his church, that the name of Jesus be exalted in this place, that we might truly worship the God of glory that's made all things to that end in purpose. And so help us now, we pray. We want, to, we want to live rightly, Lord. We want to live as those that fulfill this great purpose that you've given us. So give us grace to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have just from 30,000 feet dove into the book of Romans. So why don't we think for a minute about why this verse is here. What has got Paul here to this section he begins the book really explaining the universal condemnation and universal depravity of all humankind. Right? No one is excluded from Adam's failure. No one's excluded from the pollution of sin. And thus, no one is excluded from being a child of wrath and under the judgment of God, of course, apart from Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but he begins to explain that there is hope. And we learn in Romans chapter 4 of this man Abraham, who's sort of the prototypical believer, that he believed and God promised righteousness to him. God gave him righteousness because he had faith, not because he worked perfectly before God. And Paul begins to explain the Christian life, that, that in Adam all die, but in Christ all in him will be made alive. And he talks about this battle that we have between the flesh and the spirit, doing the things that we don't want to do, that we know are wrong, and not doing the stuff we should. But then we're given wonderful hope in Romans chapter 8, that in Christ there is no condemnation when we fall short, that actually there is nothing in all of the world, all of the universe, that is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And then in chapter 9, he switches gears a bit and begins to talk about the Jewish people. And there's this question here as to how is it that they had the covenants, they had the promises, they had the prophets, they had the bloodline, they had the heritage, and it seems as if God's word has failed. I mean, here comes their promised Messiah, their promised Redeemer, and by and large, they've rejected him. They seem unconcerned about Jesus. Actually, it was at least some of the Jews that conspired to take his life. And Paul begins to speak about 
about this, this, this wonderful mystery that God was revealing through history called the gospel, the good news that not only would Jews be saved, but God, praise be to God for us, was grafting in Gentiles, right? A wild olive branch was grafted in, but he warns. He says, don't be arrogant, you Gentiles, that you too might be snapped off of the branch if you look down on the Jews for rejecting their Messiah. Paul says that actually at this time, the Jews stand as enemies of the gospel, but the salvation of the Gentiles may be used by God as a means to stir their jealousy and bring them back to the Lord. And as he, as he minds just the, the mystery and the glory of the work of God in Christ, he comes to this word of praise. Doxology is a words of praise. Doxa, doxa and, and logos, uh, words of praise, basically. And he just breaks out into uh, a, a doxology. It's like he can't help himself here. I mean, how could you not but, but, but read the book of Romans and not just have to pause here and say, wow, look, look at all that God has done. And we get to that in verse 33 as he just begins to break forth in praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable, it's a good word, are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him? that he might be repaid. You know, sometimes we like to use in language, in literature, we like to, to say things that are somewhat absurd to try and make a point. Right? You might say something like, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. And if you try to translate that into another language, it might seem like, what in the world is that supposed to mean? Um, but I think Paul is, is doing that a bit here. He's saying things that we ought to receive as, as foolish um, has anyone known the mind of God? Ha has anyone been his counselor? Have you ever called up the Lord and said, hey, I got some advice for you. You made all these things, but I have this idea about this subject here, and I think I could improve upon it a bit. No, it's folly to even think that man could, could give God counsel, that we could give the divine advice. Wonderful text in Job where, where God is asking Job, were you there? When I sunk the foundations of the earth, did I ask your counsel? Did I call you up to get some advice on how this whole thing might work right? Or who has given a gift to him? Who can give the all-sufficient, perfect, infinite God anything that he might be indebted to man or that he might be repaid as if God is like that earthly grandfather that has everything and no one can think of what to give him. And finally, you come up with this creative gift and say, finally, I have something to give to God that he didn't have. And Paul says, no one has known the mind of the Lord. No one has been his counsel. He's done these things of his own accord. No one's given him a gift. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, and thus to him be glory forever. Amen. So what I want to do today is take the time to parse that verse out. And so we'll begin with just a simple outline. Number one, all things are from God. All things are from God. So boys and girls, you remember last week we began in the book of Genesis 
So who is there? Let me ask you a question. Who is there in the beginning? Who? God is there. Yes. Who else is there? It's a trick question. The Spirit, yes, who is also God. It is God there. Very good. God is there. And we see in the creation account, let's turn our Bibles there. Sorry. Genesis chapter 1. We see something profound in the Genesis account that I think is meant to shape how we understand the rest of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice, if you were to read through this again, we don't have the time to read these first three chapters, but you'll notice something, that the creation account is not anthropocentric, it is theocentric. That is, its great emphasis is not on man, but on God. Yes, man is the pinnacle of God's creation, but the the highlight of the story is that God made dust, took dust, formed a man, and breathed life into the man. That's the glory of the creation account. And notice another thing here, that God in the Bible is not argued for. There are no proofs given, ten reasons why you should believe in God. It is simply assumed that He is the creator of all things. It is presupposed. The scripture wastes no time explaining God's existence, trying to convince men that God exists. It simply says this, God is. Arthur Pink said it like this, His existence is affirmed as a fact meant to be received by faith. It is simply stated, God is. He is there in the beginning, created all things. Uh, A.W. Pink continues on that in this one verse, in this one statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Atheism is repudiated. There's no room here for a world that has no God. Materialism is rejected. Now, I'm not talking about the modern form of materialism where we, where we love our stuff, but this idea that matter is all there is. The supernatural does not exist. Anything that is immaterial cannot actually exist, i.e. a spiritual God. Well, here we have an immaterial bringing, bringing, being bringing into existence material things. Pantheism is denied. The creation is not God. Creation is an act of the Almighty God. And so we see that in the beginning, God was there when nothing else was there. And thus everything finds its source or its origin in God. And as an aside, it seems that we would be foolish to think that this God does not create with intentionality, with a purpose, with a goal in mind, with a destination. There's a pattern too if you read the, 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 the account in, in chapter 1, there's a pattern that we see. The first thing we see is an announcement. And God said. Over and over you see that phrase. And God said. And God said. And then you see a command. Let there be. And I love the fact, maybe you can chew on this as you eat your lunch after church. I love the fact that God said and the creation obeyed. God said, let there be light, and it was so. God said, let the waters come together, and it was so. The the inanimate objects obey the sovereign speech of God. That's a fascinating thing to consider. There's an announcement, there's a command, and then there's a report. And it was so. And it was so. And then God gives his evaluation. He saw that it was good. 
And we see that pattern over and over, the work of the creator. But notice something that is absent here. There's no other agent. There's no other actor. There's no helper. God is there from the beginning, and he is creating according to his own divine prerogative. And so my first subheading here is creation was according to the good pleasure of God. All things are from God. We're still there. Creation was according to the good pleasure of God. As we're on Wednesday night studying the 1689 Confession, there's a statement that is, that is in many of the chapters in the Confession, and it says something like this, It pleased God. Chapter 4, the, the chapter on creation, says, In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to create the world in six days. We just saw last week, as we talked about the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus to be the mediator of the new covenant. What that means is that God does what He does according to His good pleasure. He's not beholden to any. He was not obligated to create. It was not out of any necessity or need that he had, but he has done so simply because it pleased him to do so. In that sense, he is utterly and infinitely free, unlike us. But secondly, we also see under this heading of all things being from God, that creation was an effortless act of God. An effortless act. I mean, think about it. God said, God said, God said, let there be light. Let there be an expanse in the waters. Uh, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit. We're meant to see God's incredible power here. God's omnipotence. He simply speaks and mountain ranges are formed. He simply speaks and the Pacific Ocean is filled up with water. I think we're meant to see this, that creation, God is so powerful that he doesn't even lift a finger to create the heavens and the earth. One of the most effortless things we can do, I mean, you can lay in your bed and you can speak, right? Some vocal cords are required. And God speaks and brings everything into existence. You know, we have sort of a modern obsession with, with voice control devices, right? And we, 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 you can wire your entire home and you can tell some lady, do this, Alexa, I don't want to start triggering everybody's phone, or Siri, or Google, right? And maybe you're like me and you found yourself sitting there arguing with your phone. It's not what I said. It's not, oh, oh. And it starts to write what you're saying. It is not all that great at times, this voice control that we have. Because who wants to push a button, right? When I can just utter words and it can do it for me. Um, It seems, though, we want something of this power of God. I don't want to get up. I don't want to touch the thing. I just want to speak and things happen. How many parents just wish that it would just be like that with the kids? Let Let me say it once and you just do it exactly like I said. It doesn't always happen with Siri, and it doesn't always happen with the children. But when God spoke, he exerted no effort, 
and the creation came into existence. The waters did his bidding as he had commanded. And let us see, under this first point, we see that creation then is a sermon that preaches of God's divine glory and is meant to elicit the praise of the creature. Creation is a sermon that preaches of God's divine glory and is meant to elicit the praise of creatures. I want to look at two passages. Firstly, Psalm 19, which should be familiar to many of us. And then Psalm 33, which was actually last week's call to worship. Firstly, the first half of this subpoint that creation is a sermon. Creation preaches. Psalm 19 and 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Now you have to love the Psalms. You have to love the beauty, the poetry, the majesty of the Psalter. Because David says that the Psalms, or excuse me, the creation preaches, but the creation doesn't ever actually say a word, right? Plants don't have vocal cords. Mountains cannot speak to you. And yet David says they have a revelatory function. They don't actually only speak, they proclaim, they declare. They reveal knowledge. Now, knowledge of what? Knowledge of geology? No, knowledge of the Creator God that made them. They proclaim of the presence and the being of God. If you were walking in a park and you turned a corner and you came to the most meticulously um, cared for rose garden, I mean, there wasn't a weed in the ground, there wasn't a brown petal on the, on the earth. This thing is just dialed in. And you would look at that and say, this is beautiful. But you would immediately also think, someone really loves this thing and has spent a lot of time manicuring it and taking care of it. You would not walk up to that garden and say, wow, this is randomly beautiful. Look what just popped out of nowhere. Because you would see the hand of the gardener, the one that has ordered it. And creation is meant to function in that way, that we look at the beauty of it, and we instantly are drawn to the mind, to the one that spoke it into existence. So the next time you look into the night sky and you're looking at all the vastness of the stars, recognizing that our galaxy is just a blip, as huge as it is, incredibly huge to fathom, just how long it would take us to get in our station wagon and drive to the sun millions of years or something, and our galaxy is, is nothing on a picture of space. Remember that God had made these things in such a way that you're actually looking at one of the Lord's pulpits. When you look at that mountain range, God is preaching to you of His existence. God is preaching to you of His glory. He is revealing knowledge. He is proclaiming His own handiwork. The creation is a sermon. It preaches the divine glory of God. But it's meant to elicit praise. Psalm 33 is another wonderful psalm. 
And it begins like this, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. So David says, the psalmist says, that praise is proper for the righteous, those that are upright, those that are justified by God, those that are walking with Jesus. He says, it is right for you to praise. Amen? It's proper. It is becoming of a Christian to praise God. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. These are, these are commands, right? Over and over, repetition. Praise God in all of these various ways. And then he says, for. And we might place there the word because, or here is why. Praise God, and here is the reason. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his works are done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts. Have you ever, have you ever been a kid or maybe even as an adult and you're like, I'm going to look at the sun. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stare into the sun. And you last a few seconds and you're turning away and you have those circle things burned into your eyes, right? He spoke that flaming ball that would destroy us if we went closer into his presence. He spoke that thing into existence and then he commanded it to stand there right where it is. And he placed this tiny rock we call the earth in, in, in relation to everything else right where it is at a certain axis that we might live and flourish on this little earth in all of the universes and galaxies. He places man on this little rock. And the psalmist says, praise is befitting for those that know this God. He goes on, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. When we look at the vastness of space, when we look at the, 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 the beauty of the ocean, when we look at the, what seems to be a miracle for us of a, of a baby being born, coming into this world, we ought to stop and fear the living God. Our hearts ought to stand in awe of the God who spoke these things into existence. We ought to be led to worship and, and, and to praise. Now, now, we like to sort of poke holes in the low-hanging fruit of the person that says, I don't need to go to church. You know, the beach is my church or the woods are my church. And I go there and I worship God. Now, I think biblically, no. The, church, the woods are not your church. There's, there's no there's no accountability there. There's no authority there. There's no discipline there. There's no preaching of the word there. There's none of that there. But there's always some truth in things, right? We ought to go in the woods and fall on our face and worship God. Look at all that he's made. And this is just what he's made to reveal to us in a general way. We haven't even got to the cross of his son. And Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? 
Who are you, he would say in Romans 9, who are you to answer back to God? Can the lump of clay on the wheel answer back to the one who made it, to the potter? Does the vase look up and say, I really want it to be an ashtray. I really want it to be a bowl. No, it's a lump of clay. We ought to bow our knees and our hearts in awe of the one who made us and placed us in this beautiful world that he's given us. And maybe you're here today and you're unsure about this whole idea of a creator. Maybe you're under the assumption that modern science sort of has the the authority here. It speaks to really where we've come from. I want to just encourage you, lovingly, friend, open your eyes. Because every single day, God is preaching of His glory to you in the creation, in this beautiful place where He's planted you. And, and I want to even say this, that that, that idea, that, that missing of seeing the Creator in the creation is really your sin nature blinding you from what is right before your eyes. Behold the mighty God that can hang stars in the sky, that are, that are light years and light years away, numbers that our minds can't even fathom, that it takes light years for the light of that star to even reach this earth. Behold the wisdom of God who creates life that can multiply and reproduce itself. Behold the God that makes the plants give life-giving air to men. Behold your God. Bow and worship Him. Submit yourself to Him. He is your maker. So all things are from God. Secondly, all things are through God. Let's read Paul's words again in Romans 11. For from him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. Now Paul is moving along in this doxology. And he moves from the creative work of God from him to the providential work of God through him. Not only has the God of the Bible made every single thing that exists that His great power might be seen through the things that are made, but He also provides for, orders, and governs all things in this world. That word through, through Him, is a word of dependence. All things are sustained by Him. All things are upheld by Him. Everything in this world is dependent upon this Creator God. I want to illustrate this by reading to you Psalm 104. I I think this is a a wonderful place to go to see this illustration, to see how the Bible understands the fact that God made everything and that He is in control of everything, even down to the most natural, common things that we deal with in life. Psalm 104 which doesn't ascribe to us an author, but to me, uh, it's, it's, a con- it's connected to Psalm 103, which is a psalm of David. Psalm 103 begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 103 ends, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 104 begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And Psalm 104 ends, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And so let's read, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. 
covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. Verse 5, he set the earth on its foundations so that it should be never moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the bird of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nest, the stork has her home in the fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lion, lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you form to play in it. They all, these all, look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. The psalmist has read Psalm 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Notice the psalmist is recounting not only God's majesty in the creating of all things, telling the mountain where to be and the valley where to be, but that the creation itself is utterly dependent upon the Lord. That God's power and glory are on display as He governs His creatures. 
even the natural processes of life. Let me ask you a question again, boys and girls. Where do you get your food from? You cheated. The grocery store. No, you did good. You did good. Uh, the grocery store, yes. And then mom or dad makes dinner and puts it on the table, and you eat it all obediently, right? Except the veggies and the stuff you don't like. Um, but the text says that, yes, you got it from the store, and the store got it from the farmer, and the farmer planted the seed, and he watered, but God is the one that gives us our food. How does the grass grow? Does, maybe you do. Maybe you have a terrible lawn like I do, and it does need some prayer. But you probably don't go in your yard and pray, God, will you grow the lawn? Maybe you pray, God, slow it down, because I don't want to mow every other week. Um, but he says he makes the grass to grow. He's actually the cause of the grass growing. Those of you that have a garden, it says that he gives man plants to, go to, to cultivate. He gives man what he needs to make food, to make wine, to make oil, to make bread. He makes night and day. He provides food for the lion. He provides food for all on the earth and gives food in their season. All of this is meant to be an incredible display of God's power and man's utter dependence upon God, even for the most basic needs of life. I think we have here something of the essence of a, of a biblical worldview, meaning how the Bible views how this world functions. The Bible says that when a king is raised up, God has done it. When a king is laid down, God has done it. When a nation is flourishing, God has done it. When a nation is destroyed, God has done it. From the, the big things of life or death, they're in God's control, to the smallest thing we might imagine, a single hair falling from your head. God says, it does not happen unless I have ordained it. Calvin, this is a, a, a Presbyterian minister named David Hall, is thinking about John Calvin's theology. Calvin is known to be uh, uh, one that was enthralled with the glory of God, the majesty of God. And he said, Calvin described this world moved by God's providence. So here we have the first two points. This world, created by God, but moved along by His providence, governed and ordered, sustained and provided for by the providence of God. Calvin called that theatrium glori, or a theater of glory. For him, every aspect of life, from work to worship, from art to technology, bears the potential to glorify God. He said that creation is depicted as a platform for God's glory or as a dazzling theater displaying God's glorious works. This is how Calvin viewed the world. And I think how the psalmist there in Psalm 104 is viewing the world. That all of these things from creation or providence are meant for men to fall on their knees and bow in humility before this great God. Another author is, is bringing together some various quotes from Calvin. And Calvin's thinking about this idea of providence. That, as the psalmist says here, God's in control of everything. From the grass growing to the lion getting a meal tonight. He says that absolutely nothing in the world comes about, not even a single drop of rain, without God's having willed it. He says nothing is more absurd than anything 
that any, then that anything should happen without God's ordaining it. Calvin says, nothing is more absurd to think that something could happen outside of God's sovereign purview. Every success, he insists, is God's blessing, and every calamity and adversity, his curse. When we call something a chance occurrence, we like the word random. All right, that was random. He says, all that really is, is something that the reason or cause is still secret to us. And so God is thus ordering, directing, and governing all things in this universe that His mighty power, His majestic glory, might be on full display for His creatures. Thirdly, we've read that all things are from God, all things are through God, and now all things are to God. Let me read the text again, Romans eleven thirty six. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. I think the first two are fairly clear. This one's a little bit more tricky. I think I read every one I could read on, in the book of Romans. Calvin and Henry and Poole and Hodge and Murray trying to understand exactly what is Paul saying here that all things are to God. Some translations have changed it to say all things are for God. Maybe that kind of gets there. God made all things. God sustains all things. And God is the point of all things. They all point back to Him like a boomerang. They reverberate outward and come back to the living God. We know that He is the beginning, but He's also the end. Amen? He is the Alpha, and He is also the Omega. John Stott says it like this, He is the source from, He is the means through, and He is the goal to. He brought about creation, and He will bring us to the new creation. Remember, beloved, what is the highlight of the new creation? What is the pinnacle of that place? It is not that we will not have sin. It is not that we will have glorified bodies that will never feel pain. It is not that we'll never be sad. All those are incredible. But those are fringe benefits. Right? The prize is God dwelling in man's presence. The fact that that new creation will have no sun, no need of light, because God will dwell there with us. And so the end of our existence, the, the goal, the telos of our existence is to be in the presence of this God. All things, it's been said, reflect His glory, reflect His greatness, reflect His worth. The creation preaches to us of this great God and our hearts and minds are meant to be drawn back to Him as the great center of all things. Pastor Richard Barcelo says it like this, God's supreme goal in all things, therefore, is His own glory. His own majesty to be on display. His own good, His own honor, His own value, His own praise, His own fame. God is in the business of fetching glory for Himself. And Calvin, then, John Calvin, thinking about the implication of that reality of everything being for the glory of God, says this, since we have been created by Him from nothing and now exist through Him, Paul here infers that our being should be employed for His glory. 
For how unreasonable would it be for creatures whom he has formed and whom he sustains to live for any other purpose than for making his glory known. So we've been brought into this great work. We are God's handiwork, right? We are part of this creation. And we are, as the Bible says, the the pinnacle because man is the only thing in all of this creation that bears the divine image of God. For from him and through him and to him are all things, thus to him be glory forever. I want to close with a few thoughts now, a few implications of this doctrine, of this reality. I'm, I'm, I'm helped here. I want to give credit to Richard Barcelos helping me think through some of these um, implications of creation, all things meant for God's glory. The first is this, the main focus of life in the universe is about God and not man. Right? The, the glory and majesty of God that's been revealed to us in the creation and the glory and majesty of God that's been revealed to us in the scriptures is meant to point not to the importance of man, but to the importance of God. Right? To the centrality of God. Dr. Barcelo says this, Living as if you are the center is the problem, not the solution. Right? The world says we need more self-esteem. Now, we can wrongly wallow in self-pity for sure. But he says living as if you are the center is not the solution. That's the problem. That's called the flesh. That's called sin. Living for personal happiness as one's great chief end is temporary. It does not last And it does not satisfy the soul. We are restless and fickle until we find rest in God. The only way that we do that is through His Son. God has given us this incredible world to enjoy that we might be drawn back into His presence. That we might be drawn to Him. He's gone to great lengths to reveal Himself and His power to man. Uh, as I was thinking about this earlier, I looked out this window that's now closed, and there's a tree there, and we all are experiencing the joys. Maybe some are, are lamenting the triple digits are gone, but praise be to God. But we're enjoying the, the entrance of fall, right? And God, in His grace, has made things in such a way that we look at a tree, and the reality is the leaves are dying, and they're going to fall on the ground, and they're going to wither away, and they're going to Return to dust where they came from. But God in His grace, let them be dying beautifully. Right? He gives us His colorful, beautiful picture in fall as the leaves are changing from various colors, as the hillsides are painted with reds and yellows and oranges. Day to day, the psalmist said, pours out speech that there is a glorious, majestic creator behind all of these things. And His majesty for us is meant to be seen in what He made and what He does. And that means that ultimate fulfillment comes when we make Him the center of the universe and the center of our own lives. When we live not for our own glory, but for His glory, not for our own agenda, but for His agenda, that is where satisfaction comes from. And I really think that one of the main fights of the Christian is that every single day I wake up and I try to 
shoo Christ off of the throne, and I try to get right back on to that throne. And every day I have to deny myself. So, beloved, deny your flesh. Seek God and His will for your life. Make Him the center of your marriage, the center of your family, the center of your home, the center of your vocation, your work. And there you'll find satisfaction. We all know that the chasing of toys and whatever it might be is an empty pursuit. It is a vain pursuit. The, the pleasures of this life are fleeting, yes, for a moment. And then they're gone. And one day they will all burn. So the main focus of all things is not man, it is God. And when we orient our mind around that, that is where contentment is found. Secondly, any explanation of why we're here, how we got here, the purpose of this universe must begin with God. Now, we cannot do what some think it might be wise to do, and that is try to meet the unbeliever on some sort of neutral ground. Let's just talk science. Let's just talk intelligent design in a very neutral sense, generic even God, generic theism. But this world, beloved, is incoherent and meaningless without God. He is its origin, He is its sustainer, and He is its chief end. And if we truly believe that the Bible in the Old and New Testament teach us these things to be true, then instead of being ashamed of the text of Scripture, we ought to proclaim them to those that we seek to win in this way. The Bible is not a document that needs to be judged by some outside source to test its credibility. The Bible, like Genesis 1-1, simply needs to be revealed, asserted, and proclaimed. Like Spurgeon said, the Bible is like a lion. It just needs to be let out of its cage. Now, you don't have to take off the chain from the lion and then tell it to do lion type of things. It's going to do lion things. You need to get out of the way when you unloose that lion. And Spurgeon says, so is the word of God. It will do its work. God will accomplish his purpose through it. It simply needs to be unleashed and let out of its cage. And so we must start as we talk about creation, the world, why we're here, what all this matters. Beloved, we can't get to God at some point, but he must be the the starting point. We stand on that truth. Amen. And finally, and lastly, the doctrine of God's glory in all things ought to be a great comfort for the believer. It ought to bring us peace, right? Because the unbeliever turns on the news and they see a bunch of random events. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are outright awful. But ultimately, none of it has any meaning and none of it has any purpose or order or direction. It is simply the will of wicked men at any given time doing what they think is best for them. But when we let this teaching that God has made and is ordering all things for His glory to an intended end, we trust that when we see world events, when we see things happening in our families, we understand that God has a purpose, that he has an agenda in these things. You may remember, if you've been with us on Wednesdays, when we talked about his decree and providence, we said that with everything, there's a first cause and a second cause. 
Right, we see something, we see, we, we see things happen in natural processes, and, and we think it just happened. They just got sick. There was just an accident. This thing just happened. But as we saw in, in Psalm 104, God says, no, I am responsible for everything. The grass is growing outside, and God has done it. The night has come, and God has done it. Man dies, and God has done it. Life comes, and God has done it. And so there is the first cause that is God, and the second cause is just a natural working of things from a, from a natural perspective that we deem as the ordinary events of life. And yet God says, I have a purpose in all of these. I have an agenda that I am working out towards my intended goal and destination. That through the providence of God in your life, all the things you experience, God might be glorified by the praise of your tongue. As you declare His name, as you suffer well, as you trust in His goodness, as you live, Christian, not by sight, but by faith, rejoicing when it makes sense, and finding purpose in God to rejoice when it does not. B.B. Warfield, who was a, a, a professor at Princeton back in the the heyday, the glory days of Princeton, when Princeton was a bastion for Reformed Orthodoxy. He's thinking about the thought life of Calvin. I was reading a lot of Calvin this week because this is his thing. He's, 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 he's thinking about the thought life of Calvin. Calvin, they say, was a theologian of glory that, that, was, that was enthralled by the majesty of God, the glory of God in everything. And so Warfield says that the Calvinist someone following in the stream of Calvin, I'll just say someone who's been awestruck by the glory of God. Let's just say that. It doesn't need to be necessarily Calvinist. But he says the Calvinist is the man who has seen God and who having seen God in his glory is filled with two things. On the one hand, he's filled with the sense of his own unworthiness. I've seen and beheld something of the glory of God, and how can I stand in this God's sight, a creature, let alone a sinner? But on the other hand, he is the man having beheld something of the glory of God with adoring wonder is in awe of the fact that this God is a God that receives sinners. And this God will receive you today, friend. The God that made all things. The God that hung the stars. The God that spoke the universe and all universes and galaxies into existence. That never lifted a finger as He filled the Pacific Ocean. That God will receive you today into His presence gladly and joyfully. He is mighty to save, friends. If you've been struck today by something of the glory and majesty of this great God, hear me, that revelation is not meant to drive you away. It's meant to draw you to. It's meant to bring you to himself, to bring you near. God reveals himself that men might come to him, that they might know him. Now it is true, friend. You are not worthy to stand alone in his presence. None of us are. But it is also true that Christ is. And any that would come through Christ, any that would turn from their sin and believe upon the only Son, the only mediator between God and man, anyone that would flee from their sinful ways and come to Jesus Christ in faith, He says, I will receive and I will raise you up on that last day. 
I will be the author of your faith and I will be the finisher of your faith on that day. God has revealed himself in his works of creation and providence and he has revealed himself in the person of his son that men might be redeemed. Lay down whatever hinders you today from coming to Christ and come believing. Come in faith. Come in repentance. Lay hold of His precious promises. And beloved, you will find Him to be a mighty and perfect Savior. Amen. Let's pray.